Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Hosea chapter 6 is where we're at. Uh, Northern Kingdom has split off from Judah, did back with Jeroboam. Uh, Judah, however, holds the promise of Messiah. That makes the Northern Kingdom an interesting situation. Um, In the sense that their promise of God is no longer with the Northern Kingdom. Messiah is promised through Judah, and we know that through the prophets right now. So what do you do with the Northern Kingdom, led by Ephraim, Samaria, you got nine tribes that God doesn't really need for the messianic promise. In other words, they're not necessarily the holy promise of God. You just got a nation that is calling themselves a godly nation. They're saying that they serve Yahweh. Um, But throughout Hosea, through Amos, we've seen that they kind of haven't been serving Yahweh because they've made up their own way of doing it, a much more convenient way of doing it. So God has said in previous chapters, he's going to back off. He's going to withdraw. He says, I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. In their affliction, they will seek me early. So that's where we're at with the northern kingdom. The voice changes here in chapter 6 because now we get kind of an appeal for repentance. Um, And again, the judgment's coming, but the heart of God is that they would repent. That's the whole point of discipline. So it starts with verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord. For he is torn, but he will heal us. He is stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will raise us up, that we might live in his sight. Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter rain and the former rain on the earth. We get this prayer from Hosea, really expressing Uh, Not arguing with God over what God's about to do and the withdrawing that he's going to do, but really showing God's connection to his people. And then you get verse 2, and I can't just pass right by that. We once again see the third day showing up in the Bible. Like, there's just this interesting fixation on the third day, um, that there's something good that will happen. And and on this time, we see the third day will raise us up. Uh, Post-Jesus, we look back at this, and we look at how Jesus rose on the third day and how just stapled in that is. But I always love when I see it in the Old Testament because God was preparing his people for Messiah. And when everything came to be, he expected his people to turn to him and do that. So it's another highlight. Third day is used 132 times in the Bible, right? It's not a a small thing or an incidental thing or an accidental thing. It is by far one of the most used phrases that are out there. Genesis 22, verse 4, it was on the third day that Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the Lord. Genesis 42, 18, Joseph says to his brothers, do this. And on the third day you will live. Um, Exodus 19.11, the Lord comes down from Mount Sinai on the third day. Leviticus 7, Leviticus 19, part of the sacrificial process for the priests. Uh, the sacrifice was to be eaten prior to the third day. Uh, that's the length of time God would give for a sacrifice to be in the grave. 
or to be getting eaten. Numbers 19, the purification ritual on the third day was the day that they were purified, the day they were made whole. So we just keep seeing it over. And those are just a few examples. The third day becomes a major part of Judaism, but they don't know why because the Messiah hasn't been shown to them yet. They've been promised Messiah, and then they get these little pieces that are going to fit together like a jigsaw puzzle when the time comes. After two days, he will revive us, and on the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his... Um, when, we, when we see this passage, it may live in his sight. Uh, if, you li- if you translate that literally, so a lot of times when they do Hebrew translations, they'll fill the gaps with words. But if I just take the Hebrew words, this is how verse 2 reads. Day, revival, day, third, day, raised alive in your face. That's the literal translation of that verse in the Hebrew. Uh, The word day gets used three times, uh, obviously creating a very poetic thing, and interspersed with revival in third. Uh, Then kum haya panim. I love the word panim. It just means right up in your grill. When we sin, we panim. It's right in the face of God. When we do good things, it's right in the face of God. He sees everything. So this idea of day revival, day third day, raised alive in the face of God. Um, is just this beautiful image that that Hosea works in. And honestly, he's just saying what the Lord told him to say as he does this prophetically, but the Lord's dropping Easter eggs everywhere you go. Verse 3 says, let us know. Uh, Again, returning to the Lord, being highlighted over and over and over again. Um, If we seek to know the Lord by reading his word, Uh, it becomes very simple. They didn't do this. They never went back to what God told them to do. It says, let us pursue the idea of pursuing the knowledge of the Lord. It's a decision that you make. Somewhere in your life and in your Christian walk, you decide that I need some food in my Christian walk. I'm not thriving. I'm starving to death. I don't feel the joy that that Dickers guy feels when he talks about Jesus. And being in the word is one of the ways that you generate that joy. Um, Going forth is established. The idea of God moving in our life, it's established and it's as certain as the morning. That when you pursue the word of God, things and blessings, will your spirit will change and it's just a law of the universe kind of amazing that he hardwired that into us. It's a reference to the Holy Spirit moving amongst us. It's established. It's as the morning. It says he'll come to us like the rain, like the latter and former rains. Uh, Something to be anticipated for your crops. You wait for the rain. And the Lord being promised to be amongst us is something we wait for and we hope for. The latter and the former rain is a reference to autumn rains and spring rains. They're both good, and they're both essential for farmers. At the end of the harvest, prior to the winter, they wouldn't get winter times. They would get these winter rains, and that's when they got most of their water in the Middle East. The spring rains, of course, come with the sunshine, and they help the crops go up. So a reference to the promises of the first covenant with Israel. The first covenant and then the second covenant, both sets of rains. And the rain being connected by God here is not a new thing. Amos, or Hosea is using images that we saw in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Deuteronomy says in chapter 11, I will give you the rain of your land in due season, the first rain and the latter rain, that you might gather my corn and your wine and your oil. There's Israel and there's the age of the church. There's these two major ages that he's going to give his Holy Spirit and his blessing. Leviticus 26.4, Then I will give you rain in its season. The land shall yield its produce and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. And then you see Jesus getting upset when trees don't yield their fruit. That is, the trees yielding fruit is an image of God giving his blessing. The kicker is 
the Northern Kingdom has these texts. Everything I just read, those references are coming right out of things they already have in their pocket. The problem is they're not reading them and they don't know what they say. So when God's people move forward day by day and they're not knowing what's in God's word, they're going utterly unequipped through life. So you have these messages here. You have Hosea being over 60 years giving these prophecies to the northern kingdom. Prior to that, you had Amos, you had Elijah, you had Elisha, you had um, Jonah, all telling them the same things. And you get this overview. So verse 4 is kind of that, that image of what's going on. Oh, Ephraim, another word for the northern kingdom. Ephraim was the biggest tribe of the ten. What shall I do to you? O Judah, a reference to the southern kingdom, what shall I do to you? For your faithfulness is like a morning cloud, and like the early dew, it goes away. So they had initial enthusiasm with Moses, they had enthusiasm with David and Solomon, and now their faith has just kind of gotten milk lukewarm. Therefore I've hewn them by the prophets, I've slain them by the words of my mouth, and your judgments are like light that goes forth, for I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. This exasperation of God, what am I going to do with you guys? And I honestly like, it. If, if you work with kids, if you're a teacher or you're a parent, or you even have nieces that you've watched grow up, there is a point where you just kind of look at kids and you're like, what am I going to do with you? especially incorrigible kids, kids that are really hard to work with. And like a loving parent or an adult that cares for that child, God's looking at both kingdoms going, what am I going to do with you guys? You came into covenant, but you're not living by it. Morning clouds go away. God's saying, I have hewn. He's chopped them out and he's cutting them and carving them out of the world. He went through special attention to give them blessing and make them into a nation. And then you get verse 6, which is kind of the big, one of the famous ones from this book. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. This is the same verse that Jesus quoted when he was talking to the Pharisees. And they were all worked up uh, with what he was doing and how he was behaving. Um, And Jesus points this out because the idea with God here is he wants their heart more than the specific behaviors. But when they ignore what he's asked through Levitical priesthood, there's an there's a heart thing that goes on. So it's not just that they're skipping the, the way he had them to do it. It's that their hearts aren't following after God. And Jesus makes the same point. Like, it's about the heart. It's not about these specific actions. Proverbs 21, 3, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. The sacrifices are a small part of what this whole thing Sacrifices are just symbolic of the church age when we give our lives to Jesus. To give a sacrifice to bring your cow or your lamb or your, your two um, doves to the temple and the priesthood was simply to give something that cost you something and to do it as an image of that. And for God, it's, it's not that he needs cows to be killed on an altar. He really wants that behavior of the heart that I'm willing to give something up that costs me something because I love my God. And that, that desire is there. Uh, David has the same idea when he goes into the the threshing floor and they say, you can just have it. And David's like, I would never give something to God that doesn't cost me something. Why would I do that? And he pays full price for the threshing floor because he wants it to be something that God, that's honorable to God. It's not that God needs threshing floors. But David understood the idea that the heart comes first. Verse 7, but like men, the word there is Adam. Like Adam, like all of humanity, they transgressed the covenant and they dealt treacherously with me. You guys are just like Adam. You're no different. You did the same thing. 
And, and frankly, God can say that to everybody. And, and that's, again, that word man there, humanity, he's referring to everybody that's a human. We've all failed God at some point. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Then God gives specific truths. Gilead's a city of evildoers and defiled with blood. As bands of robbers tie in, lie in wait for man, so the company of priests murder on the way to Shechem. Your priests are just as bad as robbers on the, like, they're bandits. They rip people off. Surely they commit lewdness. I have seen a horrible thing in the house of Israel. There is harlotry in Ephraim. Israel's defiled. Also Judah, a harvest is appointed for you when I return the captives of my people. It's interesting that the priests would be robbing people or taking advantage. The idea is when people would make trips to Shechem, one of the holy cities, the priests were waiting to take their money. They would see them walking up the road and they were just ready to levy taxes, temple taxes, everything they could do to get as much as they could out of people. It's like when you go to an amusement park and the people working at the booths are just staring at you saying, come play at my booth. And they know they're going to rip you off. Right? It was just there. Verse 9, there's violence. Verse 10, there's sexual corruption. And then Judah gets another warning in verse 11. And, and Judah, you're not different than this. The only difference for Judah is they hold the promise of Messiah. They're special that way. But Ephraim, no longer sticking with Judah, becomes kind of just like any other Gentile nation. They're claiming to follow God, but then they don't. When I return the captives, so even before they're taken away, Hosea just says when I return the captives as a predictive fact, like that's just going to happen. And again, we look back at that and we think, oh yeah, of course. But when he's looking at that ahead of time, he's predicting it prophetically. Uh, it just gets worked in like a, a matter of fact, not a secret code. Hosea chapter 7. When I would have healed Israel, then the iniquity of Ephraim was uncovered and the wickedness of Samaria um, for they have committed fraud. A thief comes in, a band of robbers takes spoil outside. They don't consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Now their own deeds have surrounded them. They're before my face, Panyim, and they make a, a king glad with their wickedness and princes with their lies. And that idea of when I would have healed Israel, like God's heart has always been to heal them. It's always been to bring them back into the fold. So God attempts to draw them back, he blesses them, they fall away, he, he takes his hand away, they continue to fall away. Uh, it's just revealing how wicked they are. He wants to heal them, and all they want to do is go off and do their own thing. So that uncovered idea is this, God's revealing their sin, he shows it. Again, remember the image of Hosea with his wife? Is that she's literally uncovering herself with other guys. And God's using the same kind of language around what Israel has done to him. Just going off and, and revealing herself to other guys they don't consider in their hearts they've actually hardened their hearts it's interesting that as you go into sin over and over and over again you actually get used to sin to the point where you stop thinking about holiness you stop thinking how can i get closer to the lord what more can i do and so they're not even considering in their hearts where they're at and what they're doing that had to be tough for hosea and amos it's just like preaching to a, a brick wall Right? Just nothing, no response there. That I remember, okay, in verse 2, that I remember all their wickedness. God's making a point here that if there's no forgiveness, he's actually keeping track of all of it. Right? I serve a God that doesn't keep a record of wrongs. You're right if you've repented. But if you haven't repented, there is a record of wrongs. And God keeps track of it and understands what it is. Verse 4 says they are adulterers. 
Hosea himself, again, knew this practice with his wife. It had to be hard to give this prophecy going through what he's gone through in his married life. And you just think of that and you think that you can't fake out God. You can fake out everybody else, but you can't fake out God. You can pretend to be a Christian and do everything to have other Christians look at you and think you're great, but you really can't fake out God. He knows what you're doing in the off times. It's all before his face. Verse 3, they make the king glad. They do these horrible things and their leadership actually likes it. The leadership actually encourages ungodly behavior. So like the clouds, like Adam, now like an oven, you get these just images from Hosea that help to try to communicate this idea of what it looks like. Um, the oven is, they're like an oven heated by a baker. He ceases striving the fire after kneading the dough until it is leavened. Uh, ancient ovens, you had to kind of keep them going all the time because it was a pain to get them fired up. So what you'd do is you'd let everything get down to kind of a coal and then you'd cut off the oxygen so it would just stay hot and stay constant for baking the bread. But once you stir the fire after kneading the dough until it's leavened. So this another use of leaven being associated with sin. We've seen a bunch of those through the Old Testament. But there's this continual burning in their heart for sin. And there's times where they're not sinning as much, but their heart still needs to, is ready to go at any given time. So to fan the fire here is not a good thing. It's not the fire of the Holy Spirit. It's this heart that's always burning for sin and doing other things. Verse 5. In the day of our king, princes have made him sick. Inflamed with wine, he stretched out his hands with scoffers. They prepared their heart like an oven, and when they lie in wait, their baker sleeps all night. In the morning, it burns like a flaming fire. So they aren't strong leaders. They're off getting drunk and scoffing God. They're foolish kings, foolish leadership. And then they're always prepared to do this sin. Uh, even if they get through the night, they wake up, and verse 7, they're all hot like an oven. They've devoured their judges. All their kings have fallen. None of them calls on me. So they're all lit up with stuff that has nothing to do with God, and there's just this whole flock of them doing the wrong thing. God's wooing them. They're not responding to it. Verses 5 and 7 are likely referring to this weak string of kings as Hosea is now um, ministering to or giving prophecy to that whole... Remember, there's a whole group of kings there that screwed up. There were... Um, Six kings at the end, all within a very short amount of time. Four of them get assassinated. One had an heir. Only one had an heir. And the last one was taken by the Assyrians. So this just idea of these kings just being foolish people. Um, and they're all kind of forgotten. Like, I could go through the names, but I'm guessing most of us can't even name these six kings. Probably Paul could. But everybody else would be very hard because they're irrelevant. None of them mattered. They didn't stand for anything. And one of them only reigned for like a couple days, right? One of them for like a month. They're just nobodies. And that nobody is partially because God's lifted their hand. So here's a critique then of these foreign policies. Ephraim's mixed himself amongst the people. Ephraim's like a cake unturned. If you don't flip your cakes, they burn. If you bake biscuits in the oven, you know what that's like. If you forget to flip them halfway through, you get a burnt side and an undone side. So their cakes unturned. Aliens have devoured his strength, but he doesn't even know it. Yeah, gray hairs are here and there on him, but he doesn't know it. And the pride of Israel testifies to his face, Panim. But they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all of this. This is a critique of what they're doing. So at the end of days for the northern kingdom, 
They hate serving the Lord. They won't do, they won't return to the worship that God asked them to do. And they're gaining an eroding within their leadership, um, which is not what God called them out for. In Leviticus 20, the deal was they were supposed to be separate from other countries. They were supposed to segregate themselves, but they don't. So God remembers this and he points out how they are burnt by the world and they're not fully baked for him. Like they're just not even turned cakes. So there's a work that was being done that doesn't get finished properly and it's overdone on the other side. They're lukewarm. And they lose their strength because they're intermixing with the world in their ways. And they just, they're not strong believers because they're not doing it the way God called them to do it. They're weak. So God brings justice to the unjust people. He remembers their sin and he keeps an account for it. Um, and then what's worse is it says, but he doesn't know it in verse 9. He doesn't know it. What's worse is that they think they're okay. They think that that way of doing things is, is, is appropriate. And they're absolutely clueless to what they're doing. And quite frankly, God's people have done this for all of the recorded history of God's people. There'll be a group of God's people that call themselves believers, but they don't want to do it the way God said to do it. And in that, they lose their strength. They lose their backbone. They lose their guts. They walk around ashamed of the gospel, ashamed of the name of Jesus. And they have no standing with the people around them because they don't have a backbone. So people backslide and they get far from God. This isn't that, right? This isn't just, oops, I made a mistake. This is just a willful decision to call yourself a believer and to do it your own way. And Hosea is laying that on the northern kingdom saying, you can't live like that. But they do not return. They don't come back. God's their only hope, and they just won't come back. So what of the humble people that do turn their face? Right? We have seen, and we've seen in Chronicles, that some of the people in the northern kingdom get the heck out of there before Assyria shows up. As far as the east is from the west, so has he removed his transgressions from us. So where Hosea is talking about these people that won't turn their heart, for the people that do soften their heart to God and what God wants for them, there's a promise of forgiveness where there's no record of this sin anymore. None. Or Jeremiah 31, 34. Here says the Lord, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That's the promise that goes hand in hand with what Hosea is talking about here. So yeah, he's going to administer judgment. Yes, they've hardened their hearts. They're a half-baked cake. They're a weakened old man, like not even recognizing that he has gray hair. Like they don't even know that they're old and they're weak. They still think they're great. And now the next image is a flitting dove, right? Just, they have bird brains is how you would read the next part. Verse 11, Ephraim's also like a silly dove without any sense. They're just going all over the place. They don't even know what they're doing. If you want an object lesson, go out to the garage and talk to the chickens for a while. They don't know what they're doing. They call to Egypt. They go to Assyria. They're running all over trying to make deals with other countries, trying to, you know, make a partnership and to connect with them, to build bridges. Wherever they go, I'll spread my net on them. I'll bring them down like the birds of the air. You're not going to get peace from Egypt and you're not going to get peace from Assyria. In fact, Assyria is going to eat you. So be a silly dove running around in front of the people with very big teeth that want you for dinner. And that's what they're doing. So they're flying back and forth, trying to get these allies, and it doesn't work. Then God says, I will chastise them according to what their congregation has heard. That's the foreign policy. I'm going to punish you. And what do they mean by that? what the congregation has heard? Congregation is simply a gathering of people. 
usually with religious overtones. What he's saying is, you've heard my law. I gave you my, you have the Torah, you have the prophets. And I'm going to continue to go ahead and do what exactly what I promised I would do at the very beginning. If you hold out and you follow my name, I'll guard you. If you don't, there's a set of curses that comes with it. And God has worked, by the way, through every single one of those. He's withdrawn his hand. They've had hardships. Their crops haven't come through. The last of the curses is I'm going to let another country come through and wipe you out. And so according to what he said, God has said it. They have it in writing. Um, and I just want to read some of this so we know that like, we serve a just God who does exactly what he says he'll do. No surprises with God. Everything's in writing. Leviticus 26. You may want to flip there or even just write it in your margin. Leviticus chapter 26. So what kind of God do we serve? We serve a God that told them the end from the beginning. No surprises. No excuses, by the way. That's the other part. You're, they're accountable for this. So Leviticus 26, starting in verse 14, but you can really skim this whole chapter. But if you don't obey me, and you don't observe all of these commandments, and if you despise my statutes, or if your soul abhors my judgments, so that you do not perform all my commandments, but break my covenant, I will also do this to you. I will even appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever, which shall consume the eyes and cause the sorrow of the heart, and you shall sow your seed in vain, and your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, Panim, and you shall be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you shall reign over you, and you shall flee when no one pursues you. Seven more consequences get listed. He just tells them everything he's going to do. And as we saw at the end of Kings, every one of those things happen. Go down to verse 32 in Leviticus, and it says, I'll bring the land to desolation, and your enemies who dwell in it shall be astonished at it. If you don't serve me, the curse that you experience will get the people who are your enemies to go, wow, those people did not follow the Lord and look what happened to them. They're either going to get supernatural blessing or they'll get supernatural curses. Either way, they're going to glorify that there is a very real and living God that cares about this country and will take care of them his way. I used to think about this whenever Steph caught me doing something I used to think she had supernatural powers, but then I came to the much more realistic idea that God just would never let me get away with anything. And he brought people into my life that would always catch me. So it was always just more work to try to get an extra cherry Coke. I always got caught. It was amazing how that would happen. Grant and I'd be watching a movie and they'd have that one scene in the movie that you're a little embarrassed at. That's exactly when mom would walk down. Am I not right, Grant? It's like a superpower. But that's how the people of the world would look at Israel. They're like, man, those guys just get knocked around all the time. They're just a whipping bag. It doesn't get any worse. But they're recognizing that there's a supernatural authority seeing over the affairs of Israel. Either way. Deuteronomy 28, if you want to flip over to that one. And I just, the way in which God just told them what was going to happen, there's just no, he knew everything in advance. He just knew the hearts of humanity. Deuteronomy 28, verse 32. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people, and your eyes shall look and fail with longing for all them for them all day long, and there shall be no strength in your hand. A nation whom you have not known, because he told them this before Assyria existed. 
A nation you have not known shall eat the fruit of your land and the produce of your labor, and you shall only you shall be only oppressed and crushed continually. Not only will Israel dominate them for a season, Israel will then pick them up, haul them away, and send them out to where we don't even know where these tribes went to. They just get dispersed amongst the people. The rest of the chapter, Deuteronomy 28, gives the entire history of Israel before they even start their history. Like, it's absolutely stunning to the degree to which God does everything they say they'll do. God keeps his word either way. Back to our chapter. Woe to them, for they've fled from me. Destruction to them, because they've transgressed me. Though I redeemed them, I purchased them, I bought them. Yet they've spoken lies against me. They did not cry out to me with their heart when they wailed upon their beds. Again, that image of wailing on the beds, like they actually realize their lives are horrible, right? I think that Gomer realized that being a prostitute was not a good life, but she just kept going back to it. Even though Hosea had redeemed her, she continues to go back into this. It's confounding how humans do this. You can have peace, joy, love, and hope, or you can have strife, anxiety, depression, and anger. And humans were like, I'll take the bad stuff, thank you. And they just keep doing it. They choose not God, and then they say, God won't help me, which is a lie. God will help you, but you have to choose him for that to happen. He's redeemed them. Back in Deuteronomy 30, and you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I commanded you today, you and your children with all your heart and your soul, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. That's still the promise. So even though they're going to get scattered by Assyria and we as humans don't know where they all went, God knows where they went. God knows where their kids are at. He knows where these nations are when it comes to, the, um, some of them are scattered into Russia, some of them in Eastern Europe, some of them maybe over into India. We don't know where the Assyrians hauled these people, but God knows where every single one of them went. If they did cry out, he's promised to help them, and they also have that in writing. All they have to do is cry out. So some argue that as these 10 tribes get scattered all over the world, that there are some of them that actually do return to the Lord. And they start these little pockets of Yahweh-loving people that 2000, like years later, when they start to go out and spread the church, this is good news to the Gentiles. Gentiles that have been waiting for that redemption to happen. They wailed. This is an emotional, the, the word there in the Hebrew implies an emotional reaction to their situation. Oh, woe is me, right? I have it so tough. My life is so bad. They're calling on the one who can fix it. But they're not calling with a regret for their sin. They can't even see their own sin. They're just asking for the Lord to get them through these tough times, but they don't recognize that they're having tough times in part because of the sin in their life. So they see the problem. They're weak. They're confused. They got no direction. They're silly birds. They're half-baked bread. They see the problem, but they can't see that their sin is the cause of that problem. God's people, I think, can and do suffer sometimes needlessly. Sometimes we suffer in trials, what we're learning over in Peter. But sometimes we suffer because we're just dumb. And we get ourselves into situations, we make our own bed, and then we wail on it. And God's basically saying to the northern kingdom, don't, like, you're wailing for things, but you're not recognizing what the problem is. And God's just waiting for us to cry out to him and to make that right and to redeem and to fix it. They assemble together for grain and new wine, and they rebel against me. Though I disciplined and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. I've done everything to help them out. 
and they just keep doing the wrong thing. The assembling together, the idea of their assembling together is it's the kind of assembly God actually asked them to do at the temple. But they're assembling and they're doing a different kind of thing that God never asked them to do. The grain and new wine are festivals they had invented. They're not the festivals God asked them to do. They're not Passover. They're not the Feast of Booths. They assemble together, but they do it their own way. And they have these holidays that are supposed to, in name, they honor God, but really they're just drinking parties. They get together and they're just drinking. I mean, look at what's happened to St. Patrick's Day, right? That used to be a day to honor a guy who helped convert an entire country. And now it's turned into a parade where everybody paints themselves green and drinks green beer. Look at what's happened to Christmas, Look at what's happened to some of these holidays that God initially had, or we've, as Christians, celebrated for hundreds of years, and they've essentially just turned into a chance to drink some eggnog with your family. They've just turned into drinking parties. Here's a people that God built up, God strengthened. When it says he strengthened their arm, the idea is he gave them some, some heft in the world affairs. He blessed them, but now they're unthankful, and they take those same feasts that he gave them, and they actually curse him. With, they become a mockery of God. So the petty and the arrogant in this sense is tough. It's pretty arrogant in that even though Messiah has promised through Judah, this country who does not have Judah as part of it continues to do these things where they make a mockery of God. And God sees them and deals with them too. But again, they're not the Israel of the promise at this point. They're just another country. And so as just another country, he's basically saying, you guys are mocking my stuff here. Stop doing that. They return, but not to the most high. They're like a treacherous bow. A treacherous bow is one that if, if you've ever used bows, two bad things can happen with a bow. One, you can have a bow that snaps your string at the worst possible moment. And that hurts. Or you can have a bow that's not quite balanced right, and you kick your arm in too much, and as you let it go, it just rips the skin right off your arm. Both of them are treacherous. So you kind of take treacherous bows and you give them to the younger warriors because you know that they exist, and you take the bows that are not as treacherous. But Israel's like a treacherous bow. It's meant to be a weapon to do spiritual warfare in the world, but all it does is it keeps hurting its owner. They do damage to themselves instead of the enemy, a treacherous bow. The princes shall fall by the sword for the cursings of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. Even the Egyptians are going to mock you. They're going to say, wow, you guys are losers. And so as it happens, the prophet warns them of this. You get king after king that gets violently killed. They keep backfiring on themselves. They're intended to be used, but they don't. The danger of the northern kingdom is that they are claiming to represent Yahweh, and then they don't. And Yahweh has every interest to show the world his glory. And if Israel's going to fail in doing that, he's going to cut them off. He's going to not have that failure stopping his plan. So he says to the northern kingdom, don't call yourself God's people if you don't plan to live that way. And frankly, this is true today too. Nothing's changed. This is the nature of God. We just change the words a little bit. Don't call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ if you're not going to live that way. You're just bringing dishonor to Christ's name when you say you follow him and then you live just like the world. There's nothing distinct or different about you. So their derision, other nations are going to look at them and say, wow, that's what you call a godly nation? Those people? No, thank you. And we have a lot of that right now. People look at Christians and say, wow, that's what a Christian is? I have no interest in that. 
And a part of that has to do with Christians not living like we're supposed to as a people. So chapters 4 and 5 was an overview of Israel. Chapters 6 and 7 are specific charges and sins that they're accused of. And then we get to chapter 8, this apostasy of Israel. And so you get a slightly different topic. Chapter 8, set the trumpets to your mouth. Trumpets are used to call the armies to send warning to the city that there's bad things coming your way. He shall come like an eagle against the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. Israel will cry to me, my God, we know you. And Israel has rejected the good. The enemy will pursue him. So set the trumpet. There's a warning. The idea of a like an eagle. So one of the things I've taken to while I do my work I don't know if you like distractions when you work, but I love having a live feed of an eagle's nest because they're making their little eaglets right now. So the eagles will go out, get their prey, and then bring it back and vomit it back into the birdies' mouths. So you'll be kind of working along and the nest is just empty when they're out hunting, but when they land, and then I got it up on my screen right there, I just stop for a moment and watch them feed the little birdies. It's awesome. But here's the thing with eagles. They're silent, fast, and deadly. You don't know when they're coming. And when they come, they hit, and they hit instantly. And they take out all sorts of things. Little rodents, um, small chickens, snakes. Eagles will go out and kill whatever and bring it back to their bird, their little birdie, eaglets. And it's super cute in that sense, but this idea of the enemy is going to come like an eagle, the idea is there is that they're going to just swoop in and hit you so hard and so fast you won't even be able to fight back. You won't even know what hit you. Because they transgressed his covenant, he lawed. So they're rooted in this Judeo influence on the planet, and they're not doing it. What does it mean to transgress God's law? Like, if you take all of the Torah and sum it up, what are the key concepts as a country that they're not doing? And I would argue at a civic level, there are three basic biblical principles that you find in the Torah. There is an equality for everybody in that country. Rich people, poor people, they get treated with equality by the government. There is a liberty for people. There's a freedom to live your life. Just live it responsibly. Don't live it in such a way where you hurt others. And there's a justice for people that transgress the law. If you transgress the law, you will be punished for it. There isn't one set of laws for one people and another set of laws for another people. Whenever you see countries moving away from that Judeo-Christian tradition, those three things get attacked. You stop having equality. You stop having justice. You really ultimately start to lose liberties. You start to lose freedoms because the civic government doesn't trust its people anymore. So they regulate. No other religion in the world assumes that these things are good for a country. None. Christianity and Judaism are the only religions that think equality, liberty, and justice are good things. So as you see countries, especially the northern kingdom of Israel, walking away from these things, we'll see that those things start to get eroded before they fall. Nations that embrace these things don't even need God's intervention. There's a blessing for a nation that embraces equality, liberty, and justice for all. There's a basic blessing in those things, in that people can thrive in that kind of an environment. And I don't even think that's supernatural. I just think it's how God created the world and how humans work. So they're not Judah, they're not Jewish. That's where we get the word Jewish from, Judah, not Northern Kingdom. There, there's no Messianic prom, promise with them. I just want to point that out again. They're Hebrews, but they're not Jews. They're not part of the Messianic promise. And God's just saying they're on the same terms as any other nation on earth. You're not part of my plan. Yet I have to deal with you because you're hurting my reputation. So honoring God's covenants and law is what they're held accountable to. 
right? If you do it, great. There's blessings. If you don't do it, God's got to remedy the reputation situation. Matthew 7, 22, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You don't follow the law. You keep doing it your own way. I don't know you. So when they say, my God, we know you, it's not sincere. Yahweh, you're our God. They claim God, but then it says they rejected the good. They didn't do the good things that he'd put out, out there for them. So they claim to know God, and then they don't do it. And that doesn't save you. It doesn't save you to say, I believe in Jesus. It saves you to say, I believe in Jesus, and then you live accordingly. And God says, I've already provided the redemption price for you. I've already bought you. And I can see that you're sincere and that you've had that repentance in your heart, and you're living that way. So you call yourself a Christian, but then you live under your own law. God's going to say, I don't even know you. That's a, that's a super convicting thing, but it's very consistent in the New Testament. God doesn't change like that. He does the same thing with the northern kingdom that he does with anyone that says that they know him, but then they don't follow him. Israel's rejected the good and the enemy will pursue him. Here's the other thing. If you claim to follow Christ, the enemy's after you. Right? You just opened your, you stepped into a battle without any armor on and without the word of God as an equipment or as a sword at your hand, and you've just entered into an environment where not only is God not thinking you're a great representative, the enemy thinks, oh, I can eat this person alive. It's interesting when Jesus tells Peter, Satan wanted to sift you, and I said no. Right? The idea that the enemy doesn't have access to people Jesus knows, that's a really cool idea. If there's a sifting like what happened with Job, it's at the permission of God when he thinks people are ready for that sort of thing. So when rejecting the good and pursuing the enemy, there's a natural consequence for doing that. It's called a conviction. There's shame. There's broken trust. There's hurt, anger, strife, turmoil. All of those things come when we don't follow God's law. So simply as God withdraws, sin then pursues. So when God lifts his hand from the northern kingdom, the enemy is just going to go right after that. It's an opening, right? It's like when they blew a hole in the wall at Helm's Deep. Everybody went for the gap in the wall because that's the opening. So when God lifts his hand from the northern kingdom, the enemy's running for it. Reject the good, decent, and the simply pure things of life, and the enemy smells blood in the water. Ah, oh, there's a Christian I can eat alive. I can go right for him. Verse 4, they set up kings, but not by me. They just picked their own kings. They made princes, but I didn't acknowledge them. You didn't work with me on this. They, from their silver and gold, they made idols for themselves that they might be cut off. You did all this work just so I can cut you off. Your calf is rejected, O Samaria. They're, and they're talking about the golden calves that they put in Bethel and in um, Gilgal. My anger was aroused against them. How long until they attain innocence? From, and for from Israel is even this, a workman made it, but it's not of God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. All signs, verses 4 through 6, all signs of them just doing religion their own way. You know, it's, it's, it says your calf is rejected. The word there is zana, it's used twice. Um, rejected, rejected. Uh, the idea is that the zana is to cast off something that is stinky or rotten. Right? 
Your calf is a stinky, rotten calf, and you should reject it. It stinks. It's rotten, rotten is the literal translation. So far, verse 1, the law got rejected. Verse 2, good got rejected. Verse 4, leadership was a rejection. Verse 5 now, idols are a rejection of God. You've got a lot of wind in your life. There's a lot of hot air you guys are seeking after. And then verse 7, again, this is like one of the, the verses that comes out of this book. They sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. You want trouble? You're going to get trouble. You want to go after those things? They will, they will come up and get you. The enemy's going to pursue you, and I'm not going to save you from it. Because you need to see the consequences of your actions. That's important. You know, it's, it's interesting when you catch a kid doing something wrong, and they're truly sorry. Oh, I'm so, so sorry. I'm so, so sorry. You know what? We're going to let it go this time. I can see that your heart is repentant. But then the next day, they do it again. Oh, I'm so, so sorry. I'm really sorry. Please forgive me. Don't let me, don't, don't punish me. And you know, as a parent, you're like, I, I think I believe him. All right, I'm going to have some mercy. You're not going to get the consequences. But then the, the next day, guess what? They do it again. And as a parent, you're just like, oh, you know what, kid? You keep, so, you keep going after the wind. You're going to reap the whirlwind. And sin is like this. Sin is incremental. So you, you sow the wind, you go after something that seems innocuous, but you put enough wind and speed together and it becomes a tornado. And sin eventually hits and it hits a lot harder than the benefits you got going down that path. The stalk has no bud. It shall never produce a meal. And if it should produce, aliens would swallow it up. That path you're taking doesn't produce anything. We had this this morning too. Verse 8, Israel is swallowed up and now they're among the Gentiles like a vessel which is, which, in which is no pleasure. That's the nature of sin. At the end of the day, you look just like the world. There's nothing about you that's unique or special because you've been living and going after the wind, which is not unique or special. You go after dead golden calves and you become stinky rotten just like them. You become what you pursue. You go after holiness, you start to become something that's a sweet smell to God. A sweet aroma is what he calls you. You go after the whirlwind, you're just going to reap it. There's nothing good that comes down that path. Verse 9, for they have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey alone by itself. Ephraim has hired lovers. Yes, though they have hired among the nations, now I will gather them. And they shall sorrow a little because of the burden of the kings and the princes. You went after the world to meet your needs, but the world has a big price tag. Guess what? They want your life too. They want all of it. It's hard thing to do to make, it's hard enough to do what God's asked us to do. And it's hard enough to try to do everything the world's asked us to do. At some point, what the world is asking us to do may or may not match what God is asking us to do. And that puts you in a position. And everybody hits that at some point in their life. And you have to decide what decision you're going to make, I think, before you're ever in that decision. I choose God. I choose what God's called. I choose the good and the holy and the sweet and the wonderful. And sometimes what the world comes at you with isn't hard and aggressive. Sometimes it's a promotion at work that wants more of your time. Right? Sometimes it's things that look good, but they're just small G good. They're not God. And they, they hurt more than they help. God says, now I will gather them. I love how God works in the hope. Look in verse 10. It's just this prepositional phrase just thrown into the middle of the sentence. Now I will gather them. 
I'm going to bring them. Now that they're broken, I can bring them back because they get that there's nothing. There's just a whirlwind on the other end. And once you understand how empty it all is, now God can build something. Verse 11, because Ephraim has made many altars for sin. They've become for him, they, they have become for him altars for sinning. And I've written for him the great things of my law, but they were considered a strange thing. You just thought my law was weird and kooky. And you just keep building your own stuff. God gave them the Torah. He gave them the histories. He gave them the prophets. Or as we see in the New Testament, they just call it the law and the prophets. He gave them everything. Exhaustive guides on how to live that they just think are weird and quirky. So they see God's law as strange because they didn't read it. We see tons of that today. People commenting on the Bible who haven't even read the Bible. Odd thing to do that. And they, and, and they generally, when they do that, it's not a good commentary on the Bible, right? It's generally they're making summative statements without actually understanding what they're talking about. Ignorance. 1 Corinthians 2.14, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural man simply doesn't understand God's word in part because he hasn't read it, in part because it's a spiritual revelation that God gives to people. Where you suddenly go, I get what's so good about God's law. It's actually good for me. God's word is a great thing. It's a thing for which when we hear it, we're also accountable to it. Like that's the trade-off. But to them, it's just strange. Verse 13, For the sacrifices of my offerings, they sacrifice flesh and eat it, but the Lord doesn't accept them. You're down doing sacrifices that you call Judaism. They're not. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins, and they will return to Egypt. They have many altars, and they say they're for God, but God knows the heart. They're doing lots of things in Samaria. This is why the Samaritans were so hated, that that look like the practice of worshiping Yahweh, but they're not worshiping Yahweh. They're just convinced that they are. And your conviction over what you think you're doing for God simply isn't the measure that's the biblical measure. It's doing it God's way or no way at all. It's God's way or human way. So... They've reinvented God's call. They've minimized God's word. The Lord does not accept them. So we would expect that any group of people that do not commit to the reading of God's word are simply disequipping themselves to be in a relationship with God as a body. And if it's true with the northern kingdom of Israel, people God specially selected to represent him, how much more true is that for every group of people that say that they worship God? that's not Jew, the, the Judah of the Messiah, messianic line. So you look at these ideas. I'm going to go to Matthew 23 because the same idea is told to the church. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You're hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful on the outward litness, but inside you're full of dead bones and uncleanness. You got nothing. And so that idea, it's not a good approach It's like religious practice without a heart for God is you're just the walking dead. You're you're not doing anything good. The early zombie movies, this was the metaphor they were having. An entire planet full of people that just have no brain and no life and no spirit. And all they're going around is they're just kind of going, looking around for something to eat. And there's nothing that can satisfy them. There's no end to their hunger because there's no life in them. 
And so you get this idea that the Lord does not accept them. And you get this idea that there are people that are trapped by sin and they may think they're doing all the right things. But when there's no heart of life there that comes through the reading of the word and the understanding of the Holy Spirit and the following of Jesus Christ, there isn't an actual heart to do those things. You're just going through the motions. Verse 14, for Israel has forgotten his maker and has built temples. Judah has also multiplied fortified cities, but I will send fire upon his cities and it shall devour his practices. They want so much to be like the world, to look like the world. Archaeology shows us that a lot of these temples they were building, they actually hired Tyre and Sidonians to help them build temples and make them after the manner of the pagan temples. These cities that they're building, God specifically told them they're not supposed to build big cities to defend themselves, that God would be their defender. So they're going after and trying to act like the world, be on good terms with the world, do everything like the world does it. And there's in that sense, they become the world. They become the same rotten calf that they worshipped. God hasn't changed. Only now we're grafted into this. this. I think this is kind of interesting. If you look at Romans really carefully, flip there, Romans 11. The only difference today is that we're grafted into Israel. So all these things being said to Israel, Paul writes and said that we're actually part of that history because we've been grafted into that history at this point. So this is an important thing for the church to understand. Romans 11, and then I'll pick up in verse 16. For if the first fruit is holy, and the lump is also holy, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. If Israel was supposed to be holy... So are you. If Judah was supposed to be holy, so are you. Leviticus priesthood was supposed to be holy. So are we. And if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them and with them become a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, we live in this history and this tradition. And don't boast against the branches. We're no better than the Jews. We're in the same, we're at the same level. If you do boast, remember that you don't support the root. The root supports you. We're, we're just guests in this system. Praise the Lord that we are. You will then say branches were broken off that I could be grafted in. The whole point of Israel was so I could have the blessings of the church. Ah, there's roots down there that God planted 6,000 years ago that you've been grafted into that source of life that living water of the Holy Spirit. Well said, verse 20, because of the unbelief they were broken off and you stand by faith, but don't be haughty, but fear. For if God didn't spare the natural branches, the northern kingdom of Israel, he might not spare you either. This is why we study the Old Testament, why we look at Israel. Don't think that you're better than Israel. And if he was willing to have them erased, He's willing to do the same thing with any church that denies his word. It's really simple. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but towards you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. That's a big if. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. What we read in Amos and what we read in Hosea is this pattern of God saying, I'm done with these people because I'm sick of them making up their own religion. And I'm going to let them go. And as we read these prophets, it's easy to just say that that's those people back then. It's a very easy theology to think that way, that it's just them that we're talking about. But Paul tells us the exact opposite. Don't think that you're better than these people. 
Don't think that God's going to have a special privilege for you that he didn't have for these people. We're just grafted in. So as Christians, we, we're held to the standards that he held Israel to. It's the same tree, same roots, the word and the law of God. For Israel has forgotten his maker. And then I think when we read things like that, we should pray the opposite. Our heart should be to remember our maker. And I just, I'll end on that note. When we pray, we can do the opposite of what Northern Israel is doing right now. We can actually say, Lord, teach me your ways. I want to study your word because I want to know what you want for me. Do you know if you haven't read it in God's word, he does hold you less accountable, but once you've read it, you are held accountable to it. Right? That's a good reason to not do Bible study. You know, but God still tells us to learn his word. We should seek after it and pursue it because we love him. Not to be legalistic and find 600 rules to live by, right? The 10 rules of life. But just we just want to please God because we love God. We love what he's done in history. We love the mercy that he has. We love that he's paid a price for us. So we pray things like this. And let's just pray. Dear God, may we never forget you. May we know your ways. May we learn from Israel and remember and recall and choose to bring to mind your gifts and your promises. Lord, even when it's dark, even when there's very real pain and suffering in our life, help us to choose joy because you told us to. Help us to see any dark day as one where you've left some hope there for us, that the promises of your word endure today. The promise of being redeemed, the promise of the the redemption on the third day, the promise of regathering your children, Lord, that all those promises were made to the church too. And we know that you're a God that held to every letter of those promises with the northern kingdom and with Judah and with Messiah. And we know you'll do the same with us. Thank you for sending your son, the price you paid for our soul on the cross. And Lord, thank you for your weaving of history just to get our attention. And Lord, may we not dull our ears or harden our hearts to what you have to say to us. May we open our hearts. May we be soft to the reproaches that you have. May we be moldable like clay in the hands of a potter. And Lord, teach us and shape us into what you want us to be. Help us to put ourselves to the side and put you in charge. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.